And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Usually I have this Zoom meeting going about five minutes before the scheduled time just to make sure everything is copacetic, yeah. but um, we're in the process of uh, trying to buy a house, and so every conversation in between everything else that I do has been about that, <laughs> and it always runs over because it's such a complicated endeavor. Sure. Where are you looking? Um, we're looking up in Dutchess. Oh, wonderful. Uh, so you're, you're in New York then, too? Yeah, I'm in New York City right now. We're in the North Shore of Staten Island, which is kind of where we've been since about 2012 because we got priced out of Manhattan. Yeah. And um, initially we were looking in the Wallkill area. Oh, cool. Uh, but uh, that's a hard one because everybody wants to be, be in those mountains. Yeah, so. it's so beautiful up there. I'm my, So my mom grew up in Poughkeepsie and we go down quite a bit. And then I lived my entire life between where I am now, which is way in the country and then down in Manhattan too. So yeah, very yeah. familiar and it's an incredible good luck. It's so there's so many cool houses out there too, like historic, like beautiful little. Yeah. Yeah. We're hoping to uh, get maybe a, like a fixer upper that was built at the turn of the century. Yeah. Uh, and see what we could do with it. That's cool. That's Ideally. exciting. Yeah. I, uh, I have three pages of talking points to go over. Okay, uh, <laughs> I love I love your writing and I love your mission and I want to talk about all of it. Okay, uh, great. Because I, I and I listened to a podcast that you did, and I'll link to it in the description. I guess his name is Franco Romero. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I thought that was a great interview, and to keep the discourse intact, I'm going to link to that in the description because some cool. of my talking points are about that. I'd like to continue that conversation to a certain extent. Great. Awesome. Uh, can you talk? Uh, just introduce yourself, what your background, what you do. Sure. So my name is Jesse Buell. I write under the name Jesse Bender. Um, I've always wanted to be a writer. I went to school for English and fine art, and then I went back to school a few years, years later for 
um, library and information science. So um, big on books. And then I also run Kern Punk Press, which um, has been around since 2015. And we do, really, I started with experimental fiction, but now I'm just trying to do experimental writing writ large. Um, yeah, is that good? Is that a good, yeah, that's good. synopsis? <laughs> you started your press at the same year that I went back to school. To get oh, yeah? Yeah, I went, I went in my early 30s to revisit my education and kind of undo the damage of public education. <laughs> no, 100%. So you yeah. got an MBA? I got a bachelor's first from Empire State College, and oh, then cool. I got an MFA right after that from Sarah Lawrence. Oh, my God. Wow, yeah. that sounds amazing. <laughs> That's how I spent age, ages 34 to 38. Oh, I was cool. just in school full time. I think those are the best ages, don't you, to be learning? Like, I, like, now I'm like, God, I wish I had money and time to, like, go. And it seems like the best time to, you're really, you're more aware, I guess, of what you're interested in, or at least I would be now, so. Yes, I I 100% agree with that. Really, um, I found that a lot of the students, regardless of what their areas of studies were, they were able to tailor their degrees to what they were doing or was wanted to do. Right. Uh, and that helped their writing that, you know, I was a writing tutor as well. So we were able right. to write better papers. Right. Uh, and <laughs> and you were actually interested in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, but then also like both of my degrees are in writing and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if I would have been able to get a writing degree had I gone at a traditional age. I yeah. just I know my mind wandered way too much yeah. when I was younger. Yeah, and I think I mean at least for me it took a long time. I've always loved books even from being a little kid, but it took me a long time to feel to find a little niche that I'm like this super excites me about writing. Like there's always enjoyable reading. But there's this little pocket and it took a long time and a lot of different reading to find those, that area. And I think that would be the, I know if I was 20 or 19 writing, it'd be very different than an experience <laughs> now, you know? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Sarah Lawrence, again, beautiful area right there. So, yeah. Bronxville. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about your education. Um, you talked a little bit about it in that other podcast. Yeah. Um, what, what was going to school when you were younger like, and how did that translate to you finding the arts, if it connects at all, which I assume Yeah. <laughs> I, so I grew up in a, I moved, when we were really young, I moved around a lot. But when I, we finally settled in, I was around 10 and we settled in in a very rural area in Shenango County, New York. And so it's very um, isolated. There's a lot of poverty. um, And the arts are very much focused on, on folk arts, which makes sense. And that's great. I love folk art too, but it wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of exposure to all different types of art and expression. So um, you found it in pockets and, I knew that I wanted to be an artist. So when I went to college, um, I went to Ithaca, which isn't that far away, but Cornell had so much more um, exposure to different types of people and different types of ways of creating and uh, expressing yourself. So um, I think there is that kind of 
balance between like growing up in the country and um you know not having too much else to do there's a lot of time for reading and being creative and trying to think for you you know entertain yourself and create for yourself um but i always sorely sorely um was jealous and missed out on people who had access to like the opera or different museums and that type of stuff and um as I've grown up and, and and moved back here, it's something that I've been trying to advocate for, bringing in more um, more non folk art, more um, non traditional forms of expression around here, at least, and um, and growing that community up here because I think there's interest. People don't know if they're not exposed to it if they would like it, you know. So yeah. um, I think there were there so just you know blessing and a curse i guess in some way there so i do feel like i was delayed in getting to know things that other people just knew about you know i just for example this is silly but going to college and everyone's like, oh you've never heard of the pixies you don't know what the pixies are and i'm like we've got two radio stations <laughs> one's about god and the other one's you know um 94.9 which is like corn and stained and that type of <laughs> so it's like no i've never heard the pixies and um anyway so just little things that you're like oh man i wish i had realized this easier or earlier and been exposed to it earlier type of thing yeah i, I come from a sheltered background to a certain extent and half the reason i up and moved to new york in 03 was because i needed that culture shock i was so right. desperate to know what i don't know like right <laughs> i didn't want to be like my parents and right. the best way to not be like that is just to go head first into what to me was a foreign country. I don't think Manhattan is America in, in the in the way that other Americans think about America. To me, mm -hmm. it's a foreign country. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean that in the best of ways. Like, I love Manhattan. 1000. Uh, I feel the same way. When I first moved to the city right after undergraduate, I um, lived in a commune in Brooklyn in Williamsburg. Um, I don't think I'd be able to afford Williamsburg now, but um, it's it was like being all over the world. Like I didn't know any other Americans. You know what I mean? Everyone else I knew was from all over the place. Um, my next door neighbors were Japanese. There were people from Corsica, and you know, so just just learning. It definitely is. Um, it feels like. It, I agree. It doesn't feel like America. It feels like. You're traveling all the time, basically, wherever you go. So, yeah, that's a great way to explain it, too. You're traveling all the time, even though you're yeah. not leaving an island. Right. <laughs> <laughs> is that your personal library? This is my library. How's it organized? <laughs> so, library of Congress? <laughs> well, no, I'm not that I'm not that uh, strict, but it is fiction, nonfiction. My, that's my poetry corner over there. Art books. Um children's books on this side and it's uh by author alphabetically uh except for the nonfiction that's grouped by subject so it's almost kind of like <laughs> that's a great room i'm jealous jealous of that room <laughs> it's the best it's my pride and joy so let's talk about your play okay great you sent me your play uh Kinder Krankenhaus, my Kinder Krink Kinder Krankenhaus. Is that am I pronouncing that right? So I learned German on my own. It, I always say uh, Kinder Krankenhaus. I think it's Prank, but I could 
be wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's like child suffering. Yep. Yeah. Child illness house. Yeah. And that's that compound word is an actual German word? Yeah. Yeah. So you said in a previous podcast that you think every writer should write a play. Mm. Mm-hmm. What was what was it about writing a play that made you think that? Well, there's there's several facets. For me, at least, I tend to um, like I'm the opposite of Cormac McCarthy. Like I like flowery. I, there's a ton of description. I like mood setting and symbols and and really expounding upon that. And when you're focusing so much on dialogue. Um, it's a completely different world and it's a different skill set. And it's a, for that part, it's been amazing to refine that and to also look for subtleties in expression. And it doesn't have to be this big thought being expressed. It could just be some kind of guttural thing, but the, to imbue that with meaning um, has been a, a challenge for me and something that I think is should, probably important for most at least fiction writers, I would imagine. Um, and two, it's been such a great experience <laughs> just in general. I think, at least in my experience, the theater world and the, the fiction world is so bifurcated. Um, I don't see a ton of overlap, at least in my relationships. And um, the, theater, the writing world, uh, the fiction world, at least in my <laughs> experience, I love us. I love writers, but, you know, it's, um, it's a little bit harsher. There's a, a, where I feel like the theater world, while there's still the amount of rejection and everything, when you get into it and they have the play, the, the objective is different. The objective isn't to critique it at that point. It's to take whatever the material is and make it as, as performant as best as you can. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see people coming at the text differently. Writers would have a, way of analyzing it where it's very different from actors and directors and um i think it's been a really great experience to see how people how different people take the words and use them um or think about them i guess so i think it i think it would be really helpful for for any writer to just kind of go at different mediums and see how people use those mediums um and what can help you and what could what you don't care about as much you know so pick and choose. was this play put on yes yeah we did it in february and i have an acceptance again in um it's a theater in in brooklyn called the brick so that'll be next september we'll be performing again i have a question about it because just for people on youtube this is what it looks like show it to the big camera um <laughs> It reads very much like a play that can just be read. Like it yeah. reads beautifully oh, as a non-performance. And it's clear that you love words <laughs> and <Yeah>. language. <laughs> um, there are some parts of it where I'm like, how would this right. be performed? <laughs> right. uh, like, yeah. for example, there's very simple things like, I will cloak you too. And then you have two versions of two in brackets. Yeah. And then there was another one where you just have mathematical symbols yeah. when uh, Python is doing his thing. And yeah. <laughs> how, how did, how, how was both of those instances performed? 
because I get it when I read it. Like that makes a lot of yeah. sense to me. Right. And and what you might potentially lose, um, which I think is also kind of an exciting thing too. I like I like fiction that I think of as like kind of abstract art, and I like um, you know being able to interpret things different way. Thus the different um, spellings and the homonyms and that type of stuff. I when I originally wrote it, I was like, I don't, I didn't really, I thought of it kind of as an extended poem, rather because I didn't think a lot of these things were possible for the half of the, the uh, stages on fire the entire time of the play and stuff. So, um, but what's been really cool is with theater people, they've been like so ready to attack it and think about how to, to, um, to make a, at least a shadow of it, if not the exact literal thing. So one thing that we did with the initial production was um, we realized the stage itself, uh, the set itself was basically um, a projection and it devolved into more text. And then you could, all, there was also text put up on the screen um, specifically when Nix is talking and Nix is a character who, um, kind of represents when you think of um or if anyone knows autistic people there's different kind of tropes you see with autistic people and one one thing that's somewhat common is kind of the stream of consciousness thing and that's what nick's the character of nick's represents and she just kind of uh, um extrapolates based on whatever people are talking about and that was all, everything that uh that character talked about was projected on screen um i think to help people not lose the importance of what was being said by that character. But I think there's probably other ways to do it too. It, it, I think it, what's cool is it creates like a really um, interesting challenge that people could really get creative with, maybe with vocal, like the audio or something we could, I don't know. There's different ways to hopefully <laughs> accomplish it. But I think that's a part of the story too, you know, not to, not to yammer on too much, but to, the fact that we lose things when people are trying to communicate verbally, we lose things all the time. Um, hidden meaning. Another character is called the shadow. They do something that a lot of people, autistic people do called echolalia. And, but when the shadow repeats things, again, it's homonyms, synonyms, that type of stuff. Um, and the person just thinks they're yammering on when really they're adding more context or a different interpretation to the scene. So I think it's interesting to have a physical manifestation of this writing to, to reinforce the fact that the whole point of it is that it's impossible to communicate with each other, you know, and that, and everything we lose um, when we're just interpreting it through our one, our one lens, I guess. Yeah. I really, you know, I, I love that you're tackling this idea of like just communication and there's also um, definitely the theme of neurodiversity going on here. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of this reminds me of just kind of growing up and being told that everything I was doing was wrong, that mm -hmm. everything I was saying <laughs> made no sense right. and not being able to be taught basic concepts. I mean, it goes back to the whole thing where I had to undo the damage of going to school. Right. Right. Um, I was a failure at math. Nobody could convey math to me. It just right. didn't click. And then at Empire State College, I personally hired three tutors who all got through to me in different ways. Mm. They were willing to actually have a conversation and, and communicate. Right. And it's so funny 
because one of them used the essays of Francis Bacon to hmm. get through to me. And I ended up yeah. getting an A minus in the general education class that I had to take. And I couldn't believe it. And all it took <laughs> was a little effort and a little right. understanding. Uh, and anyway, I just, I know that there's a Francis Bacon theme going on in some of your work. And yes. so I just want yes. to show you that. Oh, I like, awesome. um, but it's a framing, you know, like in, uh, we, I feel this, I personally felt the same way with math too. I, it, especially when we got into um, calculus, I was, it was getting way too abstract. And I was like, I have no idea what the hell, there's no grounding in reality or, or something that I could latch onto. And it, everything, the, everything afterwards just kind of got lost because I lost that first grounding. So I feel that I'm, I do feel just like you said, if people, for one of my novels, I had to do a lot of research about engineering, which is heavily math-based. And I was like, uh-oh. But then I took so much time reading and figuring it out. And I think it's just, it's, um, I think all minds are, are capable of things. It's, it's how we're presenting the information. I think we um, are very quick to call someone stupid or just dismiss them um, and not, and it's really not, um, a deficit on someone's behalf, but more um, how we're communicating. You know, we're not communicating. We're, it's, it's speaking two different languages, even if we're speaking the same language. So, sorry. But to, I'm, to extract, maybe it's getting a little too far off, but I do think I 100% agree. I feel, I feel the same way with math. Math is a language. Once I thought of math as a language, it became a whole different, I was like, oh, you're talking to me. <laughs> it's, it's, I feel like my life is small epiphanies all the time like oh that's what the hell that they were you know they were talking yeah. about. well understanding math as language was one of the groundbreaking things for me right yeah it's it's a simple thing but it's like i wish someone had said that a long time ago yeah yeah and don't worry about like if you think like you're going on like the whole point of this podcast is to get you talking and so okay. you're doing a great job <laughs> okay. um so you you have a bit of an obsession with etymology and language and words and yeah is that yeah, safe 100%. to say that yeah. yeah definitely don't you think it's interesting I've, I've I've since I was a little girl it's sitting right here I have a big etymological dictionary and I think it's um again to play into the confusion you look at the root of the word and it could mean something like originally it meant you know um boat in old english and then we take it and twist it and hundreds of years later all of a sudden it means um rapidly moving or something like that and and it it just adds to the fact that you're like this doesn't really make sense it's so arbitrary and um anyway yeah well well yeah. i wanted i brought it up for a few reasons and we can just yeah. step through them uh one of the things that i was remembering when putting together the bullet points for this conversation yeah. was one of my writing professors in my undergrad had met, had talked to me about how the English language specifically often evolves to reflect society's prejudices. And she had mm. an interesting outlook. She said almost every word that is, that is meant to describe either a non-white race or a female often devolves into a word that you shouldn't be using. So mm. brothel, for example, <laughs> right. used to just mean a house where a woman lived. Right. And it obviously devolved into something else. Right. 
every <laughs> word that's ever been used to describe a black person has yeah. devolved into something that you, you shouldn't say. Right. And I thought that um, maybe you had noticed this as well, because not a I, lot of people think about this. Yeah, I mean, that is really interesting. I think you could definitely see that, too, in people, any people that we other, including people based on ability. I think that's um, um, anything with, you know, crazy or Beyonce just got in trouble with um, spaz, you know, and all of so we look at these words and they just seem so innocuous and they really are rooted. They can be rooted in in something that's so, you know, harmless and we take it and manifest it um, into something, you know, based on the other, whatever that other might be. So I think that's really incredibly interesting that you're, it makes sense, you know. Yeah. Then uh, there's well, a lot for mental things. I mean, oh. I, that it's anything and it doesn't have to be, you know, an ability or disability. It doesn't have to be that. It could be, um, you know, when people start losing their memory and or it's so many things, um, the, the things that are related to dyslexia and that type of stuff become manipulated into these really um, uh, pejorative. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's interesting because I um the, this idea of neurodiversity brings about the whole idea of um just kind of being different in that way and the words like you said crazy or I know that prior to me meeting my girlfriend um I used to use the word schizo all the time oh that dude went schizo over there but her right, mother right. is a schizophrenic and so right. now I am tuned to not using that word like i just right. have an aversion to it right so I, th I think it's easy to it's such a kid thing i don't know why it's a a younger person thing too but when i was young like everyone called something that was not cool was uh gay so everyone oh mm. so gay that's so gay and and that's it's like generation. and i had <laughs> gay friends you know like it's not like it was just such a you not you just use it not even thinking what the hell you're saying and how uh, impactful it is for someone because you're we're so self-centered in a way you know even if we're trying to be good people we it's hard to be reflective I think maybe at a younger age especially yeah um, well I think coming up in the 80s and 90s from yeah. rural areas not city areas right like we just didn't have access to a lot of what those words actually were for. Right, exactly. And so we just throw them out there because any word that could really offend somebody we were trying to offend, right. you know, just to get things going or whatever. Right. Like or that's just what we used regardless right, exactly. of what it meant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I had people in my class growing up that just threw the F word around the three yeah, letter sure. F word. And yeah, uh, it it really got under people's skins, and you never really knew why. And I don't even think they knew why for a long time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's but just, yeah, exactly. It just worked. But that's another reason why I chose to come to the city, right? Because you don't want to be enveloped in not knowing. So one hundred percent. And also, I think to anyone who, I it just, I mean, it's not, um, you know groundbreaking to say this but any people who feel different you are like the chances of more people who feel like me or think like me or want the same things as me i have a better chance of finding it 
fair. You know what I mean? Just based on statistics. That, um, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, half my writing is about like feeling like like one of the things that recurs in a lot of the the both my short and my long length writing is I grew up in my parents' town. It was mm-hmm. an island off the coast of Maine. This is my parents' island, and it is not mm-hmm. my island, and it's never going to be. These are their people; they are right. them. Right. And <laughs> case in point, everyone but me stayed. Right. Everyone right. but me married somebody there. Right. I come to New York and suddenly an arts an artist is a viable mate. An artist is a viable profession. Right. And right. there it's just completely unheard of. There, if you want to get married, you gotta wear a tool belt. You know what I'm saying? Right, like, right. One hundred percent. And people sometimes people in a city don't realize that that's still like they think, oh, nineteen fifties and you're like, No, not really. It's still very <laughs> prevalent. So yeah. Yeah. Uh I love that you borrow from other languages. I don't see that a lot. There are a lot of people who are, have, have, I don't know if it's a fear of doing it or some sort of other guttural aversion, but can you talk about your process from, for borrowing words from other languages? Sure. So I, um, <laughs> I guess not surprisingly, being interested in etymology and everything, I love languages. I am horrible, horrible. I'm not an easy learner with it like I in my undergraduate you had to take French or German I took French because I thought it would be like Spanish and I'd have an easier time with it and I struggled so bad orally like I for some reason I can't hear where the word ends when French is notorious for that you know swallowing half the word and stuff but I think um especially with like Germanic languages Romance languages we have such common roots again all all over the place i think it's um incredibly interesting to see how one root twists and turns out into different meanings in different cultures um i also think too how it's interesting how language forms the base of an entire personality so um the the vocabulary we use forms like you know who we are how we define ourselves and then when you have different languages, you have different kind of almost like persona, I guess, based on just that language itself and how it constructs itself and how it constructs meaning, where it puts a noun in a sentence, just little things like that, like the Germans move the nouns and verbs all over the place differently than us. And I just think it's really interesting and what that prioritizes and finds important, these little subtle things. Um, so... I think, um, I think that on one hand in Kinder Krankenhaus, it, it is like an easy kind of metaphor to just again talk about how quickly, uh, communication breaks down because of different, different knowledge and different understandings of what a potential word might mean. Um, but I also think too, um, it helps emphasize the, the idea of, of a common root, um, if, if that makes sense. And, you know, I, and also with Kinder Krankenhaus, it's really kind of set in a nowhere time and space, but it is, I did want to hint back to Nazi Germany, which was a real thing. And they were really euthanizing, you know, not just aut- autistic kids, but anyone that fetal kids with fetal alcohol syndrome, kids who just, you know, 
were socially awkward. It was just you know, whatever reason they didn't fit into this Aryan ideal. Um, so that's another reason I wanted to throw uh, the German in there. But there's a lot of French too because I, I steal quite a bit from Derrida. So <laughs> all those those things trying to braid them together, I guess. Have you have you ever attempted to or achieved? designing your own words for word like if there's a word that you feel like should exist for something oh interesting no i don't think i have but that's really cool i've always thought that was really my next kind of step was um trying to like really delve into like translation because i again the transmutability of what a word could be then what a sentence could be um gets is just kind of blows my mind so I was I wanted to try that, but I think yeah, coming up with words and um, who did it? Like Tolkien did it, right? Or uh, I'm trying to think of other people. Yeah, too. I think a lot of the fantasy authors try to do that. Or it's I mean, amazing. I think he invented a language. But right. like, I mention it because it's clear you love words. Um, I can see what kind of professor you would be if I had studied under you, <laughs> uh, and playing with sentences and. You know, I have this nephew in middle school. He's a writer. Like, you probably get a manuscript from him in 10 years if you're still running the press. (laughs) Like, and he designs words to shorten his sentences. I don't know anybody who's an adult who is doing that. Like, designing words because I don't want this sentence to be long. In middle school, you're doing that? Right. And, and like, (laughs) his writing is so, I'm like, I love that he's my blood because it means that it's in the blood. But like, I don't know. I just, I I feel like sometimes I'm on these Twitter conversations with people who are in the writing community, right? And there's so many who have an aversion. It has to already exist. It has to be in the dictionary. And um, one of the things that I noticed about you is it's all open-ended. It seems like. Yeah. Try it out. Experiment. Yeah, 100%. I think that's what's interesting. I, there's, and I've, I've always tried and preface it by saying there is value in doing, and you know, following the arc, following this, the grammar to, to a T, even if grammar is always evolving, and we could have that a whole other discussion. But um, I think what I'm most interested in is where the growth and seeing things, and it doesn't even have to necessarily be successful, but just, I, I'm just like, again if we think of it as abstract art someone doing something completely new like what it sounds like your nephew's doing like that is what is the coolest thing you know like that's um what i like try and look for at income pocket what i try and do in my own writing and it's cool to have probably an uncle like you because sometimes kids are trying things and i think they're discouraged because people are like what the hell is this and if you have someone encouraging you you could especially at a young age you could go and do amazing things so that's really cool yeah well when it comes to him i try to be the adult that i never had right (laughs) but he has i i think he's been surrounded by pretty good teachers because at one point i think in the fifth grade he had a pass that if he felt like he had to write he could use this pass to go to a separate room and go write and i'm like that's a great teacher who gave you that one of those for adults I need yes. to step out of this meeting because so I, I don't care go. about this. Right? <laughs> I mean, the, 
if if employers don't want us stealing time to write, then they're going to have to give us the pass. <laughs> exactly, one hundred percent. I'll be back later. Right. That's awesome. Good. That's so nice to hear. Yeah. But yeah, don't you? I just think, and I know you've had Loie on here too, and yep. and like her writing. Just um, it's hard. I think any medium um, to do it in that's really difficult. I think it's writing. I think it's easier to be experimental in music and in painting. And maybe this is going to really anger people, but I think you have, there's so much more fluidity with the medium and we are bound by characters. So how do you take this and make something truly new? It's, um, yeah, it's really, it's something I try and think about all the time. I don't have an answer, but I think these people are trying to do it. I think that's cool. Now I'm going to have to try and make my own words now. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, that was one of the things about her work that stood out to me when I read her caps, her undergrad capstone project, which she published. Um, it's called Soul Trouble, mm. and she published it under her maiden name initially. And I'm like, oh, this is this can be writing too. Like it really right. started opening <laughs> my mind, and I think that's when like my films started becoming really experimental. That sort of opened the gate because. The release of that wasn't far from when I quit my business and went back to school. Yeah. And it was kind of all tied in. Uh, and so I'm really influenced by what can uh, take me out of sort of this mode of production because I can easily fall into a mode of production. This is the way it's going to be. We sure. got to move forward like this. And then at the end, we'll have a product. Yeah. But it, it never satisfied me. For 20 yeah. years, it never satisfied me. And so this is the next question is, yeah. I am obsessed with surprise. If I'm not surprised by something, by the time it's done, I usually don't love it as much. Right. What? How do you feel about that idea of surprise? I 1,000% I agree. And I am... I. I don't know how to um, articulate it because I've, I've been myself trying to figure out how to best do this. You do need a forward momentum when you're telling a story, making a movie, writing a book. There has to be some type of forward momentum. I'm not a huge fan of following arcs strictly. And that's why I think as long as there's something completely like you couldn't foresee it coming in the next scene or in the next few pages, that is what makes it interesting to me. So, um, like I think of Vicky now, who has published a lot of books, but I've just reviewed her book from 1111 Press um, called The Vegas Dilemma. It's a collection of short stories. And one thing I've read a lot by her. One thing that I really enjoy about her is that um, it doesn't necessarily follow a plot. You're not necessarily under you know, always understanding exactly what's going on in the moment, but it's always completely unexpected. Like the next page, really like, okay, we're here. I don't, you know, like it's just, um, I think that's the biggest element is trying to make it so that it's not predictable and that there is something surprising. Are you talking about like one gigantic surprise? Well, it's more like uh, I'll often with my film work, especially, and this is why I can't ever have a film crew working with me because it would drive them nuts. <laughs> oh, so much of my screenplays are outlined mm-hmm. and there's no real direction on what props might be, what sets might be. Oh, okay. It's just a general vibe. And maybe yeah. maybe I'll write like a poem or a short essay to be a temporary voiceover to get us through it. Yeah. And at the end 
of maybe what is a three-month production process this way, yeah. it's a film I could have never predicted. It's a film I, that mm. could never be written. Yeah. And I made two feature films that way. Yeah. And they're way, I found them to be way more meaningful to me than anything that was done through a normal production process, at least yeah. as far as film production goes. Yeah. I think that's kind of another thing that I really enjoyed about the play. And I always wanted to make a film, so we probably could, I don't <laughs> want to distract things because I'd have a lot of questions for you. But um, sure, you can one ask of me. the thing is there's like, you can write as much as you can write. You could write every detail about this you know the glass has to be sitting here on the table you could write that all out but you can never control what's happening in a moment in a space and especially in a film or in a a, a play you don't know who's going to be on that who that character is really you have an idea this is this person this personality but the the actual person bringing that to life adds and takes away different things. And I think that's part of the cool thing. You're like, this is manifested into something that I didn't write. And that was one question I got all the time with the play when it first came out was, oh, is this exactly like you pictured in your head? I'm like, no, not a, it's not at all like what I pictured in my head. And that's what makes it so freaking cool, like that this has become this thing by itself, you know? So um, I, do, I, get, I have to imagine it's similar with your films. Well, one of, one of the things I started doing in 2013 was I stopped naming my characters for the most part. So I had this sort of real estate science fiction mystery I was doing, which completely failed. Uh, but it was the characters were inspector, inspector two, intern. It was all their positions because mm -hmm. I didn't know who, yeah. the, who I was going to get. And back then I was getting more actresses than actors auditioning. Mm -hmm. right. So I'm like, all right, well, if whoever the, the one who's really invested in this can create the character from scratch they're going to be the person and then I have all the actors bring in who they are what their right. background is and then I built on that with uh that my I have a movie that I did in 2016 called Death and Life which is an art house interpretation of Jane Jacobs book The Death and Life of Great American Cities oh, interesting. um unofficial unofficial because I don't know what the copyright <laughs> right, laws are right. but uh so I just say it's a an interpretation of her philosophies rather than an adaptation but um, I just the main character is artist he's an artist yeah. that wanders you could call him wandering artist but it doesn't really matter like the right. whole character was structured around this one guy that I met in school who um, just walks around the city looking for patterns he looks for patterns mm -hmm. in anything takes pictures mm -hmm. of them and all his artwork is created out of that and I'm like oh, cool. that's going to be the character and we're going to document it for real and then we're going to build a fictional science fiction reality around that yeah uh, and that's what I did and it's a process I can tell you I went to film school and that's a process that would they would never allow I would right I like failed film school practice I got out <laughs> by the skin of my teeth but it's right. it's it's one that has kept me going for you much longer and you know none of my peers are making films still yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah, gotta yeah. work yeah i think that serendipity at least again this is a personal opinion but that's what you look for in art right you can't i think too like a film school or even with the play just because you have to raise money for it and everything it becomes they want the business component and if you don't hit that then you're not gonna but if you're looking at just the art component where that serendipity lies, I think, is the most exciting part because it's going to be different um, every time. You, if you had, if you made the same movie three times, you'd have three completely different movies. 
you know. Um, anyway, I, I think that's what's interesting, and that's what makes it in a, a experience, in a special experience. So. Yeah, and and we've seen examples where the same movie has been made a couple oh, different true. times by the same <laughs> filmmaker, like anyway. Robert Rodriguez's Sundance movie. Um, El Mariachi is the exact same as his follow-up Desperado, only Desperado is a mainstream Hollywood version mm-hmm. of that. Right. Um, and so that's, and different actors, obviously. And so um, that's a great example of what that looks like. But um, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yes. So serendipity. Great word. There's a lot of luck required, required with serendipity. Uh, yeah. How hard was I mean, what's your editing process look like? Is it, was it hard for you to find an editor who understands what it is you're doing? Because I feel like a lot of the editors in my network would have a hard time with some of my more experimental stuff. One 1,000%. I, um, yeah, I, I get a lot of, and I don't know if it's people just being nice to me, but I get a lot of, <laughs> oh, this was amazing, and you're, I really like it, you know, you're writing, blah, 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 but I could never sell this, or I couldn't, I don't know how to work with, I don't know how I would give you notes to restructure it because then it wouldn't be what it is type of thing. I get that all the time. I, I have an agent somehow. And, um, even she, when I give her <laughs> script, she's like, uh, like you should, she's just like, you know, this isn't commercial, right? I'm like, yes. And she's like, okay, well, then we're going to try our best with it. You know, like, there's not a lot of um I haven't gotten tons of of major other people like giving me notes to do editing from a lot of the editings me trying to um uh, one thing that I, I get stuck in all the time is a lot of people are always learning in my any of my writing people are learning but learning's not very exciting <laughs> to read about or watch probably it's just sitting there thinking so I always, I'm trying to go, I usually have to go back in and add more action because a lot of things are just, um, you know, description and stuff. But yeah, the edit, the editing process to me has not been, um, as laborious as the, I have a pretty intense, um, pre-production, I guess, or just research process. I, I do a lot of things rooted in something historical. So that it takes, I have just, you know, pages and pages of notes and and trying to think about um to root it in some type of reality even when they're not rooted in reality i guess but um yeah probably not a very satisfactory answer i know people are very big on editing i'm probably um not the best person to espouse that i i i try to self-edit everything as much as possible um, just because my stuff is so hard to to get people on board with. But um, one of the things I was always an advocate for in my MFA program was people, I've always felt people were too reliant on editors to clean up their work. Mm. I'm like, you guys should be capable of getting this thing near publishable as much as you can. Right. Um, It feels like it's one of the few art forms where too many creatives rely on other people to finish it. Yeah. I'm also, just like you're saying too, I'm not one person to, I don't write um, and just get it out. I write a paragraph and then I edit that. Like I kind of write circularly and I make very slow forward 
momentum. I just kind of go back and do it again and go back and do it again. Yeah. So maybe that helps too. Instead of some people I know just write the whole thing. They just get the whole thing out, which I've never been able to do. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy outlining the whole thing, but when it comes down to the actual writing of the thing, I, I, yeah. I think your approach has always worked. Um, just focus on the same one until it's right, and then just keep going back to it. Right. And it's it's almost kind of like you're going down a little bit, then you're going back up, and then you're going down, exactly. but you're going to go down a little bit further, and then you're going to go back right. up. And, uh, <laughs> especially if you're really into energy and, and flow, that's the best right. way to do it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So... You're kind of a hero because you're an, you're a writer who's you've published a lot. I think in the in the last podcast you said something like ninety six percent of your work has been published. <laughs> I mean that's really intense. Uh, but on top of that, you also started a press, yeah. and it's a press geared towards uh, catering to a void in publishing, which is desperately needed. And that's mm-hmm. of course experimental and art house literature. Uh, and so can you talk about um, starting your press and kind of why you did it? Sure. sure. I just want to preface it by saying I, I do stick by that percentage, but I don't think it's necessarily that I'm a big gleaming genius or anything. I think it's more just tenacity. Like I'll see on Twitter, like you're saying, someone will be like, I got 10 rejections. Should I still keep trying? I'm like, Jesus Christ. I was like, that, do that about a hundred times more and you'll be fine. So, um, but yeah, so I started the press just because, uh, you know, I'm, I've been a, a, you know, an academic librarian for a really long time and I read a lot and there's a lot to enjoy out in the world. But, um, one thing at the library that I had started to work at right when I started Kern Funk was they got a lot of those, um, you know, top 30 under 30 or whatever and top, um, and those are great and people should be so happy with their achievements. But I was not as, you know, I wasn't finding a lot of things that I super loved in those compendiums. So I was like, I um, wanted to get more into the small press world. And I think I, again, just like I said, that that space is the most interesting to me. And I do think um, without those places for people to, to get a little bit of a foot in the door, we're not going to see like a proliferation of new of new things. We're going to just keep seeing the same things over and over again. And my my real goal was to um, we have published one person twice, but my my real goal is to not be a house where I'm publishing the same people over and over again. I really want it to be like, okay, I published that current punk. I can put that on my resume, and now maybe someone will take me a little more seriously at a bigger house or whatever, whatever. Um, because that is for people who haven't published yet, sadly, kind of the world we're living in. You, you, people want to see a lot of places, not all, but a lot of places want to see a resume or they want you this to be the first thing you've ever written. And they discovered some brilliant person somehow wrote the most perfect thing the first time they wrote something. So it seems to be those two worlds. Um, and I wanted to be that kind of stepping stone. I take it seriously. But I, I wanted it to really be like a something to help people, basically. Um, and we found some a really amazing and incredibly diverse artists from all over the world um, making really incredibly weird and very, very different things. So it's been great. So from the time you conceived 
I'm interested in sort of the technical workings of having a press. So sure. uh, the time you conceived this idea for the press to the time you actually published the first book, yeah. how long was that? <laughs> it was a while. I, um, before I became a librarian, before I went back to grad school, I worked in editing. So I had that background um, and I thought, oh, I have this, this should be good. That being said, I had none of the production <laughs> background going in. So, you know, I had to learn InDesign and I had to figure out um, like distribution and all of those things, printers. Um, and that's what sucks if up a huge percentage of um, a book's production costs are the mail and the printing, which I guess shouldn't be rocket science, but it shocked me how much <laughs> money it took to to do those things. So um, it's, we, we started right during my maternity leave for my daughter. So in June, July, I accepted a book probably in August and we didn't get it out until the following year, I think early the next year um, or maybe very, very late, but it took a, it takes much longer to make a book now just because I'm, I'm more well aware of like the review process just takes sometimes six months to a year to get reviews. But um, yeah, it was, it's been a long learning process. I'd say our first book to now is, is it's, it would be dramatically different how I handled what we did at first to how we do our, our production now. But it's been good. The last um, small press owner I talked to, it was from season one. Uh, and he was running all of his printings through Amazon's service. Mm -hmm. um, or how are you running your printings? So I have, it depends on how big of a run. So we just, oops, are you still there? Oh, sorry. I thought it froze for a second. Um, I, for our chat books, which are our poetry books, they're a lot smaller. There are fewer pages. We go through a, a more traditional offset printer. Um, it's more but it's um the larger printers won't publish or won't print a book if it's smaller page number basically so if we have a, a traditional book those go to a traditional um printer i also put it up on amazon now just because su such a significant portion of people don't think it's real if it's not on Amazon and also don't buy books unless it's on Amazon. I'm obviously like probably most of the writing world, you know, not too keen on making the, you know, obscenely wealthy, even richer, but it it's kind of just like a necessary evil in this business. I, I did try other, um, you know, ways of distribution, but the, we are too, we're in a spot where we're too big for some of the benefits and we're too small for some of the other benefits. And it ended up eating so much of our book. Like it would put me um, in debt using distributor. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's been a long learning process, but we do use Amazon, but predominantly we do um, print runs just from a regular printer. Um, and I try to engage that on like pre-sales. We we rely on pre-sales pretty heavily to inform like how many copies of a book will potentially sell. It's a usually a relatively good idea. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. How do you decide like 
the aesthetic format of a publication. So you sent me this book, Birth of Eros, and I will be oh, interviewing yeah. this author at some point oh, once yeah, great. she heals from surgery. It's a nice tiny book. Yep. I love the page layout. But it's different from from uh, Loewy's book, which yep. is a little bit bigger in yep. size. And so how do you decide uh, the aesthetics of a publication? I've always wondered that. Yeah. So, sometimes it's... I very much, again, I think because I'm a writer, like I want this to be this person's kind of vision, the author's vision for the book. The author has a lot of input at Kern Punks about, uh, you know, cover... Um, even like font, if we try and accommodate everything that that person wants to see um, in their book. In terms of size, it re- a lot of it comes down to page numbers. So if something, so like like Deborah's book that you just held up, it is not uh, an insignificant amount of page numbers, but there's not a ton. There's a lot of vignettes, so you have like a lot of chapters that are just paragraph or two paragraphs. So because there was a lot of white space, we chose to make it on a smaller page just to make it um, look more full, I guess, if that makes sense. And then Loewy's had so much, um, so many words that we thought a bigger would would be more appealing, I guess. Um, but uh, to, to be honest, for at least for us, I, I'd say 95% of the aesthetic choices, the production choices are are up to the author which is why probably they all look so different all the book covers and <laughs> i did notice that they're all they're all their own signature style which is yeah. like really great did you see that um stephen king testified about the merger the potential I merger I, I haven't read it yet but i did see it in the headlines i was like oh god <laughs> who is it who's merging penguin and penguin random house is trying to acquire simon and schuster and oh, if okay. that happens then top five become the top four and you know if it becomes top four it's going to become top three and so he was saying that authors are going to have less opportunity to, uh, in terms of negotiating their contracts if yeah. there are too few big publishing if it, houses if there's two <laughs> if there's two yeah <laughs> good god well, yeah it's it's crazy yeah you have some great quotes from the previous podcast and i wanted to unpack some of them a bit more because you talk about how um, one quote is art is the most important thing you can do. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, <laughs> and then if we don't provide this space that you've created here, uh, we're going to be losing things. What kind of things will we lose if we, if we don't provide a space for creative people? Yeah, I, I really think it, it, again, just talking about the big four, big three, big two, whatever it is, <laughs> it's, um, it's, there are a lot of books out there now there's a ton of people who are writers um but they're they're different venues right if we think of like traditional um can canonized writers there's only a really few venues that you can can more easily get into that realm of writing um i think we lose the art in it i think we lose that genesis area where you can create things new you can create defining um factors of our generation i'm sure i hope other people wonder i always wonder about that all the time what is what is our generation going to be remembered for creatively um 
I'm not sure what it is going to be right now, but there's always something comes out of it. And I think if you don't provide those spaces um, and it's not, there's nothing wrong with self-publishing. I think it's amazing that people can self-publish, but the problem is um, the snobbery in the, in the, the written world, but also the um, visibility. I worry about if we can't get people looking at um, just a little bit of a platform to step up just to show, just to have more people see it, you lose incredible works of art just in, into the to the masses, you know? So um, I guess those are the two facets, the, the creation of something new as well as the, the ability to see it against the all the stars in the sky, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. And I, I, I 100% stand by the art comment too. I, oh, I, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if most people think about this, but it's when you think about your life, I'm like, at least I can say I've created things. I've tried, I'm leaving behind creations. I feel like that's um, super important, just like, you know, it is to make people's lives better in some way or, I think it's equally important, if not more important, art should exist for that reason. Even if it's completely soul-suckingly devastating art, it still exists as a as some to make something better, basically. So, hmm. yeah. What's the uh, most useful tactic you've found in trying to market all of these titles? Sure. And this is one that we're totally going to extract for all of you writing peeps out there. I don't I don't know if I have all of the best answers, but I do know that sometimes um, it's just the amount of times that your your name is seen. So I think people are like, oh, book reviews. No one reads book reviews. And I'm like, well, I hope that's not true because I write a lot of book reviews. But two. I think just even if no one's reading it, they're seeing that hyperlink with your name, with your book's name. And eventually people are like, oh, I'll give that a try. I think a lot of it's just repetition. So I, I'm a heavy believer in the spaces that provide book reviews. God bless those brave souls like that. Thank God that those exist. And then, um, you know, anything just like podcasts, interviews, anything that helps people connect to your writing um, somehow. I, we don't have money <laughs> to, to like do big campaigns or anything like that. And that's really how we've seen success. Um, and a lot of it too is, you know, author generated and it can be more traditional. Like I've had authors that are readers, performers, they want to be out there and seen with their book. And I've had writers going, please, for the love of God, don't make me read in front of people. I can't do it. And that's cool because they have other ways, like whatever gigantic Twitter followings, or they, they're really engaged in, um, you know, the community in their niche or in their community, in their actual community where they live, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and then that just spreads the word that way too. I think however people make connections, I feel comfortable making connections. That's the, that's the only way that I've seen these <laughs> books get out there. Um, yeah, it's not scientific. <laughs> it's just a numbers game. You're just trying to get people to look at you, basically. There's a lot of emails sent to people. Please consider this. Please let me send you a copy, basically. So. Yeah, I see a lot of people like really 
especially the self-published offers, desperate for reviews. Do you feel like reviews have been effective or is it just... I do uh, think I do think reviews can be effective. I think even if it's just one poll line you can put and someone has an association with that writer or with that, that publication that they're like, oh, that ends, lends some type of credibility, especially since a lot of our books are sold online, you can't pick it up and leaf it through to see if you like, you know, a paragraph or anything in it. I think that's really helpful. I think for self-published authors, if anyone's listening that's doing self-publishing, I think a lot of times those reviews are critical on Goodreads or on Amazon because they all still, uh, you know, um, feed the algorithm and you become more credible in the system and you'll, you'll surface higher in searches going forward. That's definitely true in Amazon. So um, get those reviews if you can. Ask your grandma to fill yeah. one out. Right? Yeah. Engagement. <laughs> Engagement on any right. online platform exactly. is really important. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I mean, I think, I've asked you three pages worth of questions <laughs> and I loved it all. This is totally what this podcast is for. So uh, if you ever want to send an author my way, uh, feel free to be, treat this podcast like another marketing tool if you need to. Cool. Awesome. Uh, I love the mission. And thank you very much. And, um, so you had, you had questions about filmmaking, eh? Yeah. <laughs> well, so this is going to be so such like neophyte stuff. But I just, it's my birthday next week, and I asked for a camera, a black magic. Mm-hmm. I don't even know all the rest of it, but it's, it wasn't the most expensive one or anything. It was, I think it was like 1200 bucks or whatever. And I just wanted to start like playing around. Have you ever seen um, A Field in England? That's a film? Yeah, it's, um, it's on Hulu right now, I think. And it's, it's um, Ben Wheatley. He did like Kill List and stuff. I'm gonna write it down. Well, it's it's like I just love it. It's got historical elements, but it's also super trippy. Like they eat a bunch of mushrooms and all this weird stuff happens. Um, but uh, I wanted to start doing stuff like that. He does things that aren't like earth shattering, but it's kind of um, kaleidoscoping the image and stuff like that. I'm anyway. I, my point is, is I'd love to start doing like some shorts or something. Um, but I'd just love to hear, you know, like how you got so obviously it sounds like you have a whole big background in it and everything, but what you think is like the best. Yeah. So forward. you're definitely like that black magic. I've got two versions of that camera and yeah. I swear by it because oh, great. Thank God. <laughs> um, you, from the price point, it sounds like you're going for the 4k version. Mm-hmm. Um, and that mounts, um, micro four third lenses. So you'll, you'll have, some pretty good lenses at your disposal, uh, some good options. Um, but that takes care of filming, right? Mm-hmm. You're pretty much done except for audio um, and lights. But lights, I mean, they come cheap these days. For me, I have this film school background, and I was trained to work on a set, but I don't use any of that. Yeah. I never did, and that's why I never got work in the unions and stuff like that. Everything right. for me was always about trial and error searching for the right thing um occasionally i'll reshoot something i shot two weeks ago because after shooting a movie for a while i figured out what the movie is yeah um it's really it's legitimately what experimental filmmaking is and it sounds like that's kind of what you're going after is just to probably what i'd be interested in yeah exactly and 
almost like visual poems, I guess. Almost. Yeah. yeah. And and I think more writers should be doing that, to be honest. I think yeah. like creative people in general should be messing around with all the mediums. Yeah. And this is something I found after going back to school. Like in 2012, I could have never seen me taking a watercolor class at Empire State College. Right. Like <laughs> I was not in my personality, but I ended up with one because something about that experience broke me. Yeah. In a great way. Right. And right. so like if you're a writer, why not paint? If you're a painter, why not make take photos? If you're taking photos, well you can certainly take video. Like, right. Right. It's it's all interconnected and it'll all inform everything else. So when you start making films, uh, whatever they are, you, what you're learning on that might not be obvious from day one, right? but it'll start affecting how you visualize your writing. Right. And that's, do you, so you said you basically out, you go from outlines, you, you have at least a rough outline in mind before you. Yep. Um, I will often start pre-production process with an outline. So right now I'm developing this monster movie and I know that it has scenes reminiscent of monster movies, but I also know philosophically I'm exploring what a monster is to humanity. Yeah. And so I'm I'm unpacking monsters in so many different ways and so many different layers. And I don't know 100% what that's going to look like. Mm -hmm. So as I start location scouting and start building different types of monsters i think i've designed three different monsters at this point Um, i'm still kind of writing it and based on what i find you know and then of course we haven't even started filming we're probably two years away from filming that's a whole nother thing where who knows what we're going to film like (laughs) i have this outline i have some scenes written i have things in development but i still don't know what i'm going to film i just know it's going to be a monster movie and any way that you think about what a monster is is going to be tackled philosophically (laughs) yeah interesting that sounds really cool do you when you like look for places to shoot do you always have to get like if you were just walking around new york city and you're like hey let's do something really quick throw like lean against this bar would you have to get like a technically you'd have to get a permit or something? So the last feature I made, which was during the pandemic, I made it in August of 2020. And we didn't have any permits because the mayor's film office was closed. Uh Um, If you are handheld and you're not mounting anything to public property and your crew is less than five, you can do whatever you want for the most oh, part. Okay, great. Just don't block traffic <laughs> or keep people right, are allowed right. to pass through your shot. Um, right. If you want to make sure the police aren't going to mess with you, you can go to the film office, which is actually where David Letterman did his show, and I think Stephen Colbert does it does it there now. Oh, interesting. Um, the mayor's film office is in that building, and they've got this thing called an optional permit, and this is specifically designed to keep the police from harassing people that they shouldn't be harassing, and it's free. And you just kind of go in, you'll probably have to mask up, and you tell them the locations you want to be, what time and where, and they'll check to make sure that they do have jurisdiction over it, and then they'll just give you this slip of paper. Oh, cool. And it's completely free for you. Now, there are some areas where they'll just be like, we have no control over it, we're right. not sure who owns it, because it's kind of a weird area, like Whitehall Terminal, right outside the Staten Island Ferry and on the Manhattan side. Nobody knows who owns it. <laughs> Because <laughs> we tried to get a permit there several times, and they're just yeah. like, yeah, we don't know who to contact. So yeah. we just kind of run and gunned it. 
the Staten Island Ferry, I mean, they have, I know they have ferry. When I lived there, they didn't have the ferries between the, you know, like Brooklyn and Manhattan and stuff. But I always thought that that Staten Island Ferry was like a cool little place. Like it's an old, weird little, it's own weird little thing, you know. It could yeah, be cool well, that's, that we sort stuff. of live around that whole system. And yeah, we, with all the ferry stuff, we have to like kind of do it on, do it secretly. Yeah. Uh, I remember in the 2013 project that I did, we got caught. And this is how small the maritime community is on the East Coast because one of the deckhands on the ferry said, took my name because I was the director. Right. And he's like, Eric Norcross, Norcross, are you Richard's kid? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know how many times that's happened to me? Like, anywhere where there's a maritime like right. business i'm always getting shut down by somebody who knows my father because he was he was a mariner up in maine and uh but now they yeah they have those those ferries that go but along the east river they got the ferry to Rockaway, and yeah. i you know with my movie fractals which was the movie i did over the pandemic we stole footage on all of them <laughs> like we okay. just that makes me feel better because i was like I know you can shoot photographs like just standing, you know, as long if you're on uh, public area, you know, land and like on a sidewalk and stuff, you're able to shoot wherever as long as you're not on someone's private property. Um, so I was just wondering if it was like a lot of those. Yeah, a lot of those rules apply. I would say if you're on public transit, keep your gear presence at a minimum. I'll I'll mm -hmm. never have a uh, a sound operator. Mm -hmm. If I want sound, I mic everybody and have them recording locally to their back pocket or whatever okay and um, i'll sync it later yeah uh, but i don't even mount it to the camera when i'm in public yeah what do you do when you're done like how do you how do people see it do you i know this one woman who does documentaries she puts a lot of stuff on like a paid vimeo and stuff but i didn't know if there was like what the what people do basically yeah so i don't do vimeo because vimeo charges a lot of money and oh. most people won't go there yeah there's this aggregator called film hub okay. and you can um there you go. yeah write that film down filmhub.com and cool. you can just basically upload your master copy of your movie and they'll f push it out to places so right cool. now death and life and fractals which are sister films of one another they're on Amazon Prime Video. They're on Tubi TV. They're on a bunch of others oh, that I've amazing. never heard of. Yeah. And it's all because Film Hub found them and pushed the movie to them. Oh, cool. So everything's like, kind of hosted through there. It's kind of, I, for a long time, I dated a musician who like had his music used in different TV shows. It's kind of, it sounds kind of similar. Like they are a hub and they go, oh, Justified wants to use this song in the background of a bar scene. And then you get whatever percentage of. Loyalty. Yeah, exactly. And they handle all the money okay. too. So it's like, here's yeah. how much you earned. Yeah. Cool. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. I was even thinking, I mean, I will, I know I, I probably have to go to in a second, but I just wanted to, you know, just, I, I did a lot of stuff in different little galleries around lower Manhattan and, and uh, Brooklyn. I was like, even just like a little art show or something like people with some of it, like a small piece or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you don't mind, I'd love to write you and pick your brain and stuff. Yeah, please do. Yeah. Um, I'm oh, looking cool. for more people to make these kinds of projects that we've been talking about. So yeah, cool. And awesome. a lot of my a lot of my film work is influenced by the gallery scene much more than Hollywood or anything like that. So cool. oh, awesome! Is yeah. there, 
there's a lot of similarities between the two. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Right. Yeah. Cool. Oh, oh thank know. you so much for taking the time. It's really nice. It's always, you know, I never know. I'm not a, I'm not quick on my feet, so it's it's nice to, um, it's been just nice conversation. I appreciate it. That's the whole goal of the podcast. Yeah. Just talk about art. <laughs> right. Cool. Nice. I'm excited. Deborah's gonna um, talk to you too. I don't know how much you've talked to her, but she's like, she's just really cool, and she's like a strong woman like she's got an opinion and you know like i just like that she's not that's what that's who i want and i yeah. told her like look if we have to push it till october we will recovery is important so just get yeah. recovered so we can have a great conversation and yeah that's awesome. the vibe yeah. yeah cool all right well thank you again eric i super appreciate it and i yeah. definitely will take you up on if i annoy you with film stuff just let me know <laughs> will do okay looking forward all right thanks again Bye. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.